0: Step right up, step right up. Welcome to the world of wonder, a world of imagination, peer into the future. Hey, you, come close. Greetings, trailblazers, visionaries, and inquisitive minds, eagerly tuning in from every corner of the globe. I'm Mina Tadros, your guide through the captivating labyrinth of innovation, and you've just stepped into the electrifying universe of the I'm Pharmacy Podcast a true place of wonder and enchantment. We will show you things that will change the way you see the world and live tomorrow. Are you ready for the journey? Welcome to season four. This season we explore the heart and soul of the academic endeavor something near and dear to us here at the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy at the University of Toronto. Some would even say it is in our DNA, our core purpose, innovation. We're not just peering through the keyhole of innovation this season, we're kicking down the door and inviting you into the heart of this very idea. Picture this, a world where ideas are the currency, where imagination takes flight, and where innovation isn't just a silly buzzword. It is the beating heart of progress. It is not just about new drugs, apps, or flashy tech. More importantly, it is things that change the way of doing, being, caring, seeing, and living. Innovation is the engine that propels us into the future. And this season, we are diving deeper into it. Innovation is not just a concept, it's a force that should be propelling us forward, guiding scientists, thinkers, and innovative pioneers as they navigate uncharted waters. It's about breaking molds, shattering expectations, solving problems, and going to the very edge of what was once deemed impossible. More importantly, as we navigate this tumultuous time period filled with so much uncertainty, the thing about innovation that I find so fascinating is that it gives us hope. It gives us hope for a better tomorrow, And if that's not what our jobs are about, then I don't know what is. But what is innovation really? And I know some of you rolled your eyes the moment I said that word. Another podcast about innovation in healthcare. But this season, it's not just about presenting you with innovations. Although we are going to explore some really cool ones, it's about the pathway of innovation. That's what I'm interested in. How do we get there? We want to explore how things go from ideas to reality and explore every painful step in between. This season, we're not just peeling back the layers. We're diving into the very spirit of the innovative pathway. We're exploring everything from that Eureka moment, the champions who champion the ideas and the failures that pave the road to success. More importantly, I want to look at that journey from experiment to real world impact. Today, innovation isn't just about solving the puzzles. It's about unraveling the mysteries of disease, developing treatments that rewrite and reduce suffering, and creating pathways to healthier and a more equitable world. So why does it matter now more than ever? Because we are standing at a crossroads of possibility. We have a lot of work to build on, a lot of great science, Innovation becomes our compass that points us towards solutions for challenges that loom large in our collective consciousness. In my opinion, innovation isn't just a luxury. It's a true necessity during this time. More importantly, it's not easy to get innovation moving. There are headwinds, and that's what we're going to explore. We're going to explore the complexity of commercialization witness how we work through change management in an ever-changing world. And we're going to explore some of the ethical and moral dilemmas that come with innovation. How do we ensure fairness in this unjust world? How do we make sure innovation isn't just for the privileged few, but a beacon of hope for all? So get ready, dear listeners, because this season you are in for a treat. Season four of the I'm Pharmacy podcast is your ticket to the front row of innovation. Buckle up. The journey begins. To kick off the journey in episode 1, we wanted to start big, and what's bigger than ideas? We want examples that paint the picture of the journey's innovation take, starting with those eureka and breakthrough moments. This episode, we have the pleasure of connecting with two remarkable researchers from right here at the University of Toronto. We'll be spotlighting two remarkable examples. One in the dynamic realm of health applications and technology, and another in the cutting-edge field of biotechnology and stem cells.
1: My name is Quinn Pham. I am an assistant professor at the University of Toronto in the Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation. Um, I teach health informatics research, mostly digital health research and evaluation, and I also serve as the director of the Center for Digital Therapeutics at Toronto General Hospital within the University Health Network.
0: So I'm always interested in people's stories about how you ended up where you are and doing, you know, asking the questions that you ask. Why don't you just start off this conversation by telling us about your journey to how you became in your current role, leading the center. For
1: sure. I think everybody's path within the field of digital health is kind of circuitous and strange um, because the field is very new. And so nobody, at least in my era, graduated from undergrad or or high school and really knew they'd go into digital health. I don't Mm -hmm. think that field really started. And so I took a bit of a strange path, I suppose. I um, did an undergrad in biochemistry and psychology at the University of Ottawa, and then I really wanted to move out of my parents' house. And Mm -hmm. so I moved to the UK and did a graduate degree in transcultural mental health care. While I was uh, doing grad school, I did an internship for a digital health startup.
0: OK, cool. So I think
1: that was sort of my route into digital. health. Yeah. I didn't know about the field. I certainly wasn't studying for it. Um, and I just saw an advert that a startup was looking for sort of like a student researcher yeah. to generate some evidence for this uh, panic attack alleviation app that they were building, mm. which at the time. No one was really doing this type of work, whereas now there's probably 400,000 health apps on the app store. Um, But back then it was pretty novel breathing retraining exercises, like digitizing that behavior Mm -hmm. into a mechanism uh, on your phone that you could use to manage your panic attacks. All of that was really exciting. And I didn't know that you could do work like that in healthcare. And so I came into it really naive. And I think that was a blessing, (laughs) to be honest, because when you don't know what you don't know, you take more risks. And I think that's where innovation in some ways comes when you just don't understand the boundaries of the space that you're working in. I think that can be really freeing because you just propose really wild things that have no rationale that have never been done before that you've borrowed from other fields. You do have I, the
0: ceiling of you know. we don't do that.
1: Yeah. 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 Cause yeah. no one knows like right. what is happening. Yeah, so everything yeah. is just really new. And, and our team was really young. I don't think youth necessarily always plays into it, but certainly with a team, everybody was under the age of 25. Yeah. I was in grad school. We weren't motivated by money. There wasn't an industry for it. Um, And so we just did great work and I learned a lot. And then I knew I wanted to stay in the field.
0: So now tell me about the center. Yeah. And what do you guys do?
1: So um, the center has been around for a long time. It was founded 20 years ago by Dr. Alex, the dad who was a pain researcher Mm -hmm. and he brought together this group of misfits from across the world who came together with this sort of shared goal or purpose to use technology to improve health. Mm-hmm. And we've taken that mandate, sort of, um, I guess, the the tagline of uh, creative, collaborative, and um, human-centered, yeah. centered on humans or centered on patients. We've taken that from 20 years ago and still apply it yeah. today today. Um, and the, the work that we do today is to build technology that will help people become partners in their healthcare, that will engage them, that will empower them to be partners in their healthcare. Um, and that was taken from another professor, um, Dr. Kevin Leonard, who since passed away, but he was, um, faculty of the center and spent his whole life sort of working on this, this, um, movement to have patients more involved in their yeah. health care and technology being a facilitator for them to be able to do that. And so the work we do now is to basically build software as a medical device. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a different class of digital health. So a digital therapeutic is often Health Canada or FDA regulated right. software as a medical device. It has gone through likely multiple clinical trials to demonstrate evidence in the same way that a drug or a hardware medical device would go through before it's um, given to patients. And so we build um, those types of products, those types of innovations within the group.
0: Cool. I think people, when you say uh, digital health, could be very broad. For sure. And what they think about, and I think obviously everyone has phones and smartphones and there's apps and So maybe you can walk us through an example, maybe something that's a little bit more matured or or, or kind of moved along. And tell us about that journey of where your center steps in.
1: So a lot of our ideas come from an expert in the field. So Mm -hmm. I think I'll walk you through the journey of one of our products called Medley, which is probably the most mature one. And it's the most widely known Mm -hmm. of. And so that project was started 13 years ago as a maybe 12, 13 years ago as a PhD project um, by Dr. Emily Sita, who's now a professor at IHPME. And um, it was also sort of the brainchild of uh, Dr. Joe Goffazzo and then Dr. Heather Ross, who is a Order of Canada winning globally renowned cardiologist is currently climbing a mountain somewhere with like a patient whose life she saved. Um, So it was sort of this confluence of a lot of people with shared interests but emily you know had the time the capacity the expertise to carry this project through as a phd project um but it sort of revolved around this idea that we could help people living with heart failure to better manage their condition if they were able to report their symptoms um both in terms of entering something into a BlackBerry at the time. Um, So answering a series of prompted questions, as well as entering biometric data. So their uh, weight, their blood pressure, their Mm -hmm. heart rate. And Emily, through her thesis work, created sort of this rules-based expert system, this algorithm that would take in all of these inputs and then, based on uh, calculation, generate alerts based on this sort of mixture of all of these different data points. And the alerts would tell you, as a clinician, If your patients were fine, so Mm -hmm. in a green state, or if there was some cause for concern, or if they should basically go to the emergency department, Um, a prompt for that would be like, I fainted this morning or yesterday or something. Um, Or it could be something like my ankles are swollen or um, I had trouble sleeping last night. I'm fatigued. I'm in pain. Um, You know, I feel like a tightness in my chest, things of that nature. Um, And so that rules-based expert system has gone through multiple iterations. It's also gone through multiple trials. So Emily's thesis was a randomized control trial a decade ago. There's been multiple trials since then because the technology has changed. So we went off the BlackBerry and are now on, you know, Android and iOS. Um, Even with newer modalities like, uh, you know, the... Um, Amazon Alexa so being able to speak into oh, cool. you know a smart speaker yeah. instead of entering the data manually for people who have difficulty using a phone who might right. be frail um, and then other modalities that that were constantly improving over time but that was the start of that work so sort of bringing together you know globally renowned cardiology expertise with um, obviously an extremely bright engineering student yeah. who was Emily and then um, an expert in human factors and engineering who was Joe yeah. um, and having all these people at the table pushing this idea forward to the end of the PhD, but then continuing to fund it through grants, through philanthropy, through now what we're doing is spinning out a company yeah. for Medley. And so that's Medley Therapeutics with the support of our commercialization office. Right. Um, and so that's the venture will be embarking on in 2024. Oh, that's so an exciting adventure. It's, yeah, it's been a long yeah. journey. So, you know, 10 years from from ideation. I mean, we've had impact at least, you know, it's sort of in the fifth year. We right. were already able to demonstrate impact. But you're looking at impact within the context of a, a closed trial or a pilot study right. or, you know, a program within the hospital. And I think when we talk about impact, what the impact we could have in this field, we could scale to every household in canada right you know what i mean with the power of technology
0: <clears throat> 10 years is like yeah it's like drug life you know like, exactly. like when we think about like how long it takes a drug because one of the seasons we covered that like that's a long time it's a long time to actually make sure that the evidence base is strong yes. and everything and but this is not the standard in the industry no because you know like just the, you know a couple of months ago i was my dad whatever and we yeah. wanted to go find an app to support cardiovascular health
1: yeah yeah
0: and it was the wild west
1: absolutely first of all like the
0: ads you're getting what they promise and what they actually do absolutely which ones are wanting you to pay and then you're going to pay and you don't know what you're getting yeah and there was thousands
1: totally and it's so frustrating (laughs) as a consumer right
0: can you imagine a patient being like telling them like you know in the pharmacy someone comes in i'm like oh i should get an app to help support that yeah keep track of whatever yeah how how are patients going to navigate this.
1: Absolutely, and especially those who I would say the majority of people who are living with a chronic condition are older yeah. and not always uh, digitally literate, not always health literate, yeah. not always proficient in English. Right. How are you supposed to filter yeah. through the really poor quality of apps on the app store? And so I think that's where at least at the Center for Digital Therapeutics, we want to separate ourselves from that. Like we're not in right. the business of making wellness apps. We make applications that you have to be prescribed.
0: Well, yeah, but health and wellness are all put into the same category.
1: Yeah,
0: it's kind of the idea of like what's truly innovative, and then what's just them creating something that's not really that innovative. I think that like that's a, that's the problem in digital in the digital space. I find like the, the process to being innovative isn't just about the idea. No, it's the actual execution. Yeah. What struck me in the conversation with Doctor Pham was the process to innovation that her team took that was different from many people in the same space. I wanted to further explore if there was parallels to this process and in innovation in the biotechnology world. To explore this, I spoke with Dr. Michael
2: LaFlamme. I'm Michael LaFlamme. I'm a senior scientist in the McEwen Stem Cells Institute at University Health Network. Uh, I have a couple other hats. I'm a, a professor in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathobiology at University of Toronto. Uh, I'm actually a clinician, so I do diagnostic work as a pathologist, um, and I've been active in commercialization in the past. I'm one of the co-founders of a company called Blue Rock Therapeutics.
0: So what kind of questions and research are you trying to develop? And yeah. like what, do you, what are you trying to develop in your labs and the work that you're doing?
2: Now? Yeah. So we're, we're focused on a special type of stem cells. So you have well, their so-called adult stem cells that are in your body that are their normal job is to replace kind of the cell loss that occurs because right. of wear and tear. Um, but we're working with a different type of stem cells. They're called pluripotent stem cells. Mm. Um, they're defined by their ability to differentiate or give rise to, at least in principle, all the cell types you'd find right. in the adult body. Um, there's two types of pluripotent stem cells. There's uh, one type you've probably heard of because they were in the newspaper for a long time, embryonic stem cells. Right. So these are cells that you can isolate from, um, say, embryos that are left over from in vitro fertilization. And then there's a kind of an equivalent cell type. They're called induced pluripotent stem cells or IPS cells. And that's what people work with most now, where you can take an ordinary Cell type, a somatic cell type, uh, from a skin biopsy, a blood sample, what what have you, and you can actually reprogram those cells to become right. the equivalent of embryonic stem cells. And what we contributed, and this is, I guess, one of these eureka moments we can yeah. kind of get to. Uh, to ways to, to guide these cells that can become any cell type. And if you just let them to their own devices, you'll get a mixture of cell types, you right. know, skin, bone, neuron, heart, muscle, what have you. Um, we worked out ways to very efficiently guide those cells to cardiomyocytes or heart muscle cells. Right. And I guess like one of the early Eureka moments in my scientific career was as a, a postdoctoral fellow. So after residency, um, this is, I show my age, but, 2002, it was right. It starts in the with States. The two, right? <laughs> it starts two. It's this millennium, I guess. Which yeah, is yeah. Good. Um, this was pretty much right after I was in the States, after uh, George Bush said you could do work, yeah. uh, you know, federally funded work with embryonic stem cells right. in the state, which had been limited uh, to that point. It was still pretty limited even at, afterwards. Um, we were right on it. So we got those cells quite early on. Um And the Eureka moment is, you know, you have this flask of cells and they're, you know, depending on the size of the flask, these were pretty large. We had like hundreds of millions of cells growing. Wow. Uh, And a little cluster of cells is beating in like the corner of it. Uh, And that's the fun thing about cardiomyocytes is they do something, you get immediate feedback, right? Because they they contract, right? The spontaneous contractile activity. And so, like, we're high-fiving in the lab. Look, we've got it. We've got cardiomyocytes. And some of the earliest work we did was, you know, like, you could literally dissect out those little beating areas. And if you grabbed enough of them, uh, you could get enough cells to do transplantation work, which Mm -hmm. is what we do to this day. Like, trying to use these cardiomyocytes from pluripotent stem cells to remuscularize injured hearts that's what we do now. Now, you know, we have much better ways of making these cells. So we can literally make these cells by the billions in Mm -hmm. the laboratory. We make them in bioreactors. So, you know, basically kind of stirred vats of these cells. And, you know, the people in the lab are considering it a failure if they're not getting 95% pure cardiomyocyte populations. And, you know, I I think back to that day when we we saw- You just had a few of them? It was probably- one tenth of one percent cardiomyocytes <laughs> right so and that was a process problem that you guys solved that was a process and, and we you know it, we and others in the field have, have been, solved yeah, it yeah, over yeah. years right yeah
0: so, yeah so i'm sure everyone listening is like okay so you grew cells of a specific kind the natural next question is like what are you going to do with them
2: yeah so, so so people have been using these cells for for sort of three applications, but we're almost exclusively focused on one. Okay. So, so there's people that are interested in using these cells as just a model of human heart development, right? right? So you can study you know, cardiac developmental biology in the dish, um, and we. You know, we know some things, but most of that hasn't been done in the human system. It's been done in animals. So, if you have models, a new right? drug or something, and you want to see how it reacts to those things. Could you well, test that's it the, there? That's the second thing, yeah. uh, and that's probably the biggest area of activity in the field is using these cells for kind of either drug discovery right. or sort of safety toxicology, like a phase zero almost. Right, right. Yeah. So there's a lot of industry uh, interest in like uh, the pharmaceutical industry. Right. If you've got some new compound to use this as a screen, because. As as you know very well, like you know, that's probably the most common reason drugs have to be withdrawn from the market. Yeah, and you fail them. Yeah, toxicity, usually arrhythmias. Right. Um. But there's a a third application, which is we what we focused on is using these cells for a a therapeutic application for regenerative medicine. So, um, and the disease that we've been focused on is is myocardial infarction, right? Heart attack, where you damage a region of your heart. Um, because the heart is among, if not the least regenerative organs in the body, the muscle right. that's damaged is replaced by scar tissue. And so our idea is at least conceptually simple. We're yeah. going to try to remuscularize that scar. And what we've shown in all of these animal models is that the cells can engraft, uh, you know, we have to deal with the immune system, prevent right. rejection and their strategies for that. They'll remuscularize in, in some of those models up to about 50% of the, the footprint of the infarct scar, be right. new human heart muscle. Um, one of our other eureka moments is we, we did the first work to show not only getting new muscle, that that new muscle actually can electrically integrate with yeah. the rest of the heart and fire in synchrony with it. The way we showed that just as an aside is we actually engineered these cells to flash every time the cells fire. So oh, they cool. had a, a basically a genetically encoded calcium sensitive fluorescent right. protein and a rise in intracellular calcium is the signal it tells cardiomyocytes to flash. And so you get these green beating cells. Right. We transplanted those into recipient heart, pointed a camera at the heart. We knew if we saw a flash of green light, the cells were active and we could line up those flashes of green light with the electrocardiogram of the host and we saw that they were occurring in one-to-one synchrony and that was the first proof that we were not just making new muscle but we were making new muscle that was able to integrate. Yeah. uh, Which doesn't happen with any other cell type you know, people have described.
0: Idea. Research. Execution. All right. Now how do we sell it? Here's Michael. So... Okay, let's talk about commercialization. So let's talk about that exciting adventure. You're working in the labs for years, chipping away at this problem. You've had a few really great steps forward. At what point are you like, okay, there's something here that we probably want to start thinking about Commercialize Like what, talk to me about how that decision is made.
2: Yeah. um, Well, I guess I'm a little unusual in that from the onset of my lab, I was involved in commercialization yeah and if I'm being honest it, it was largely a practical thing it wasn't so much that you know I, you know, this is starting back in the early aughts uh, that you know we would be able to say to companies hey we've got something and in three years you're going to make you know buckets of money yeah, or whatever yeah. and it was very early in the pipeline then but Stem cell work is expensive. It's still expensive. Yeah. Uh, these are very expensive cells to grow. So early on, there was an opportunity to get some sponsored research from a company that was operating in the space. Um, paid for some of the original work to derive human embryonic stem right. cells. Um, and they approached me and they said, hey, we know you're interested in the electrical properties of these cells. Can we support some research in your laboratory? And, and so that was probably six months after uh, the start of. Uh, of, of my laboratory, you know, as, yeah, as an independent, uh, faculty member. Um, so it was keeping the lights on <laughs> Right was, was the, you know, the initial motivation. And then later on, you know, you think about, you know, this is expensive for me to be doing as an academic scientist to do, you know, boutique studies, if you will, you know, right. in a dish and in animal models. If you think about this, you know, later on, you know, we talked about all the regulatory hurdles, the way you're going to have to standardize yeah. this and make this a real clinical grade product. And then pushing this through phase one and phase two clinical trials. There's no way, you know, I could imagine if we had really generous philanthropy and great, you know, governmental support, maybe you could do the proof of concept phase one clinical trial. That would be the worst. Time for things to wither on the vine, right? Right, Because you don't have the resources to go on to the next step. Momentum is key. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if if, if you're going to fail, you want to fail early, right? And the the worst reason to fail is just you don't have the the money to push things forward. And then it was shortly after I relocated here to Toronto that the conversations with the venture capital company, Versant, came up. They had um, previously done some large uh, new co's, new new startup companies um, with Bayer, mm. you know, the big German, uh, pharma company, yeah. uh, supporting it. Um, and so along with, uh, my close collaborator, Gordon Keller, um, we were able to get them interested and, and that became the launch of, of Blue Rock Therapeutics. They brought on, um, two scientists in their, their, uh, team that had been working, as I mentioned, with dopaminergic neurons, right. uh, for Parkinson's, which is, Another, you know, attractive target for the same starting material, the same pluripotent stem cells. You think of these as kind of a platform technology. Um, And so it was by far the biggest commercialization that I've been involved in. So they uh, launched with over 200 million U.S. uh, as a series A. So it's a little different problem or set of problems than you usually have with a new startup company where, you know, you're chasing money. This is now you've got the money, but now you've got to, now you got to deliver on the deliver. science. Deliver, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then a couple of years later, they were actually uh, fully bought out from buyer um, with a capitalization of a billion dollars. So people in tech get excited. That makes you a unicorn, I guess. Right, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, And uh, you had an exit. Yeah, yeah. It, so so it was, uh, it's been exciting to see something go from zero to to something like yeah. this and their last count, I think they were a little over 400 employees with like between 150 and 200 base wow. here in just Toronto alone. Yeah. So that's been the most exciting and kind of gratifying part for me is, you know, in some small way, the work you've done in your laboratory has contributed to not just something that could be impactful to, for patients down the road, but right now.
0: Michael's work had a clear line to commercialization But how does this work in the digital health space? I spoke with Quinn about this. When you think about the journey, uh, maybe the mature product or or even products you're thinking about, where do you see the hurdles to innovation? When you think about from idea to implementation? Right. Where's the the hurdles that you're most worried about?
1: I would say the biggest hurdle to large-scale implementation is just that the groups like mine who are building these solutions, we're not really set up to commercialize them. Yeah. We're not Amazon offices that have procurement pathways yeah. that are able to do inventory management. You know, I'm mailing out, I had staff putting together these Bluetooth weight scale blood pressure cuff kits that we were mailing out to patients yeah. so that they could use Medley. That is not and a great use of my staff's time. And how much can I scale that for, right? Like Medley is at uh, Toronto General Hospital in heart failure clinics, 800 people use Medley every day. So it's standard of care at Toronto General, but I can't really grow much bigger than that, right? right? And so my impact or the implementation that I'm going to do is kind of at the local level if I continue to operate as a research group which I always will. The center Mm -hmm. will always be an R&D group. And so I think to overcome that hurdle, you need academic groups that are a little bit more business savvy. And so you want to see this collaboration between um, IHPME, so My Home Institute, and Rotman, for example. You want to see a mixture of different skill sets coming together to solve this problem of scaling innovation. Because it's not always going to come from Dalla Lana, from public health, from health services research, you're going to need people who are able to apply teachings from aviation or from the food industry right. to be able to scale these types of of innovations out into the real world um, and and to to know sort of the market forces that would allow you to do yeah, that. I don't absolutely. have an understanding of that. I didn't study it that yeah. in school. I don't practice that in my day to day. And my lab hit a ceiling with Medley where we just couldn't productize it any more than we already have done and so we need it to commercialize and i would say that because it's so new obviously commercializing um in drugs so um molecules and things like that that's sort of a well-oiled machine the relationship between academia and and pharmaceuticals that's not really the case with digital therapeutics and so you don't really have a pathway to follow which are building that right now and so regulatory is a bit murky you know depending on if you're a class one two three software as a medical device regulation is yeah. very different what you can say or what you can claim
0: well the regulators are also you like know. moving on it right like they're yeah there's it's like move changing as we're speaking exactly right now. yeah
1: and then you have differences between health canada the fda yeah, and european EMA, regulation yeah. and you just it's very dizzying and yeah. also with the advent of artificial intelligence and you're seeing more of these algorithms being launched within electronic medical records this is a new type of innovation right and, and it feels like our attention is so easily diverted that I don't know that we figured out the app problem but now right. we're into the algorithm problem really really quickly yeah um and and I feel like as you know as researchers we have to stay We have to sort of keep our eyes on the prize all the time. We need to be in the know. We have to be reading constantly. I try to get my news on Twitter, which is now X. Like I have to really keep up with current legislation because I really feel like it's changing every day.
0: Through this journey, commercialization felt like the mountaintop. But like in all journeys, it's not always a straight line as we heard. I wanted to explore the idea of failure and the path that it takes and how it looks. Here's Quinn.
1: We really embrace failure. I think that one of sort of our mottos is to fail safely Mm -hmm. because we really want to be the environment where you can make mistakes. At a a research and development stage of innovation, which is where I would position the Center for Digital Therapeutics, our goal is to be the safe space for people to come with their really cutting edge ideas and figure out what doesn't work. We're meant to be able to provide that clarity to people so that they can have a better shot of building something that does work. And so I certainly embrace failure and I see it very much as we are building a mountain of evidence. You know, we're sort of whatever we generate in our group adds to the, body adds to the literature of other universities of other centers of industry you know people around the world doing really similar work we're not the first and we won't be the last to innovate in heart failure management right medley is not going to be the be all end all there's not going to be one app that rules them all yeah and so you're going to really see an ecosystem of these types of solutions and you really want to learn from each other yeah um And I I think that's good. Competition is good. Right. Um, And it will lead to improvements in technology over time. And so we've had a lot of ideas that we could not translate into technological form. Right. Where they really weren't usable. They weren't usable by the people who needed them most. Mm -hmm. They weren't usable um, in the moments where they were needed most, I suppose. And so we learned a lot from that. And we apply you know, human centered design principles, human factors, engineering, a lot of theoretical principles to our work to help us tease out where failure happens. So I would say that we're very failure driven right? because through those experiences, maybe not us, but somebody will find success. Right. Um, And so I'm I've always been really motivated by this notion of collaboration rather than competition, even though, you know, I think competition for later on, but at least within the scope of our group, all of our greatest ideas have been through collaboration, have been through patients coming to us and expressing a concern that we thought we could solve, or us witnessing incidents in the clinic. You know, we have a lot of students who just go and observe what is happening within the hospital and Mm -hmm. picking up on things that really aren't working well. And then again, like, you know, world leading clinicians coming and, and sort of expressing issues that they would like to see solve with technology. It all comes down to collaboration and these really creative people yeah. who um, did not study how to build digital health solutions, but yeah. we did. And so together we can build something really impactful.
0: Here's Michael's take on failure. How, how does, how does failure fit into your, your story? And how do you view
2: it? How long is this podcast like it's already <laughs> a long, long list of all the things we've tried now yeah. like, that's part of the process right so i mean you, you have these kind of breakthrough moments again where you're high-fiving in the lab like i said yeah. when we you know first saw the cells beating or when we saw the cells flashing in an animal heart or whatever but for every one of those you know there's dozens of things that you try it's 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 always incre- incremental yeah. uh one of the things that was you know, kind of my 2023 New Year's resolution yeah. that I, I, I think I'm sticking to. And, but it's definitely going to continue on to 2024. Is, You're almost there. Is, you, yeah, 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 if you stuck, yeah, 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 stuck to, that, to it, you've stuck to is writing up some of the things that we did that failed. You know, yeah. sometimes those are hard papers to get published, oh, right? I People know. are like, you know, why are you telling us this didn't work? But, you know, we've, we've got a couple of them out this year. And I'm I notorious think it's, for null findings. Yeah. I think like, yeah. any paper I'm leading is going to have enough. I it's, it's, it's important just... You know, in the scientific community, right? Yeah. So somebody else doesn't make the same mistake. Yeah. So, um, you know, so so sharing that information, I mm-hmm. think, is is part of the process. Um, but that's, you know, you, you learn what not to do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then, you know, you have, oh, I always have a whiteboard that's full of ideas in the laboratory. Yeah. We mark off that one and move down to the next yeah. one. So it's, you know, it's like everything else in life. It's kind of a continuous learning process.
0: What a way to kick off season four. Through the exploration of two examples of innovation, we've now seen the journey from idea generation to commercialization and seen all the steps and challenges, including potential failures that occur through this journey. We explored both a digital health tool example and a biotech example, illustrating the importance of perseverance and adaptability in the face of all of these setbacks. The process of innovation is not a linear one, but rather a winding path that requires patience and resilience. Both the researchers discussed how embracing failures and learning from them can ultimately achieve success and bring their ideas to life. We use these examples to kick off the season, but throughout the season we'll be diving into each of these steps and exploring more and more the steps of innovation. This episode of the I'm Pharmacy podcast was produced by Steve Southon, Kate Richards, and me, Mina Tadros. Musical accompaniment was from Steve Southon and Diego Martinez. This episode was edited by Steve Southon. Special thanks to Dr. Quinn Pham and Dr. Michael LaFlamme. Just a quick reminder, make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you don't mind, leave us a five-star review. We'll be dropping new episodes every single month. So make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay safe and keep asking questions. Catch you at the next episode.